Today is Sunday, August 14th, 2016, and this is episode 167 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. I am I, I have missed you. It's been so long. It's been a, way too long, and I am sincerely sorry for that. It's all my fault, and uh, well, here we go. partially my fault, too, but you know that... The, the true reality is that, that we have full-time day jobs that sometimes get really crazy. And yeah, this is sadly one of those things that gets backburnered when we have crises afoot. That's right. And uh, it sucks and we're sorry, but that's the sad reality of the situation. Unless someone wants to pay us each, I don't know, 250 a year to just podcast. Hey, I'm game. Then we can, we give you a show a day. That's right. I'm down with that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so yes, it's great to be back. And uh, we, we certainly are going to try to be more more uh, on schedule, but, uh, you know, no promises. Can't always uh, plan around the cybers. So uh, before we get started, the thoughts and opinions we have on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Um, so I guess getting into some stories. Our first story tonight comes from CSO Online, and the, and the, the title here is, uh, if I can get up there, report only 3% of U.S. companies pay attackers after ransomware infections. So uh, there, was a, there was a survey done of, quote, hundreds of senior executives at, at uh, different companies around the world, and they consolidated the results. So you have to things with a grain of salt, but basically in the, in the U.S., uh, as the headline says, very few organizations end up paying for a ransom, but that stands in stark contrast to other countries around the world where uh, the payment rate is much higher. Now, I thought it was really fascinating, and the reason I wanted to talk about this is the, the allegation here, and it's hard to tell if this is causal or, or not, is that... Um, allegedly in other countries the level of employees who are falling for these ransomware or at least impacted by ransomware attacks tend to be much higher in the organization and so the higher up in the organization someone that's impacted the more likely the organization is to pay and so in uh, in other in other countries outside of the US it's much more common for executive type uh, uh, people to be impacted and then uh, pay. And they also point out that uh, the larger the organization, the more it uh, they end up having to pay. And it's not entirely clear to me exactly why that is. I, I, I think that there are some, well, I know, there are some different malware or uh, ransomware crews that, that really focus on enterprises and have a much different rate sheet than uh, than others but I, I don't know if, if in other cases it's just a, a matter of 
the sheer number of, of PCs that were infected drives the, the, you know, the overall cost up. So I've not ever gotten a satisfactory view on that. Yeah, it makes you wonder how scientific the survey is, but some some interesting stats here too. Uh, you know, globally they're alleging forty percent of organizations pay ransom, uh, and they break that down to seventy five percent of enterprise victims pay it up in Canada, fifty eight percent in the UK, and twenty two percent in Germany. Uh, well, here we're at uh, in the US we're at four uh, percent. I don't know. I uh, there could be all sorts of cultural implications. There could be all sorts of reasons for that that difference. I do think we are at the leading edge of this, though. I think it's going to get much worse before it gets better. And I think, you know, we saw an article the other day of something we predicted a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, that organizations are now starting to stockpile Bitcoin to pay ransomware. Yep. Which I thought was pretty funny. Next up, there will be the Bitcoin ATM in the lobby, as predicted uh, on this show. That's right. Right. You know, there was one thing in here that I thought was interesting too, uh, which was the a couple of stats on on how ransomware entered the organization and and what type of machine. Um, email link was thirty one percent, so a link in an email people would click on. An email attachment was twenty eight percent. So, again, email is nearly sixty percent of our infection vector, which is pretty pretty interesting. And then websites or other. Uh, or application other than email or social media was 24%. So, so probably banner ads. I would Banner ads or uh, Trojan yeah, downloads, I bet. Malvertising and such, yeah, yep. absolutely. And then interestingly, physical location, desktop computer, 49%. Laptop computer, 36%. So I merged those two together as an endpoint machine in my mind. Yes. Which is, you know, basically... 85%, which makes a lot of sense because that's folks interacting with those sorts of vectors. They're interacting with email, they're interacting with websites, so that sort of thing, as opposed to servers or smartphone or tablets, which were 5 and 4% respectively. So again, this is an interactive attack at an endpoint, uh, just confirming a lot of what we've seen before. Um, and uh, we'll see, we'll see. I, I think that a lot of the ransomware games are now gangs are now pivoting to really focus on corporate in in, in around the world and in the US. So I this three percent stat, you know, also how do you know how true that is? How do you know that people aren't answering the way they're supposed to be answering? Yeah, I, I I'll tell you the, the the first thought came into my mind when I said that is I you know, I wonder if this if the results of the survey have as much to do with the honesty <laughs> of different cultures as that it does with anything else. Or, or a related aspect of the perceived shame of paying a ransom in different cultures. Yeah, yep. You know, the U.S. has always been the we never negotiate with kidnappers, right, you know, kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's. But I, I think the takeaway here is that it's still a, a massive growing threat and uh, it, it's not going to go away. It's It's too profitable for the bad guys they, they you know as much as everyone says don't pay don't pay clearly people are paying it's working and it's going to continue to work so we're going to see more and more folks i think get hit by this because it's an instant mon monetization attack it, it makes a lot of sense for the bad guys it's a very scalable business model it's true yes so um so moving on to our next story, which comes from bankinfosecurity.com. The title is Swift Heists. Yes, we're going to talk about Swift again. Swift Heists, the new account takeovers. Uh, and so 
there's really, I wouldn't say anything strikingly new in this particular article, but they kind of rehash some of the, 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 the basic points that um, there's a lot of finger pointing going on in the industry right now. People saying, you know, the Fed should be doing much more in terms of, of uh, fraud analytics and whatnot, but they're, they're not in, you know, I guess allegedly, according to the reports I've read, um, the contract, the contractual agreement, puts all of the onus on the originating party. You know, the the receiving party is just, you know, responsible for collecting the message and then acting on, um, you know, acting on it, and the the originator is responsible for making sure they had had proper security. So it kind of seems like if there's mud to be slung, it's that the whole model itself is just you know, maybe a little wrong-headed given the current threat environment, I suppose. Um, and so, from that perspective, it's 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 interesting that there's so much uh, heat and and whatnot being thrown at the the Federal Reserve Bank to do more. When you know that's not, you know, I, I'm trying to come up with a good analogy, right? But if you you know if you uh, if you pay someone to mow your lawn, you know, do you do you uh, do you strong arm them because they didn't, you know, tr- trim your hedges too, or <laughs> for the same for the same price? Well, this is the fundamental problem here when when we've got all these interconnected systems and and liability and security issues. Who owns it, right? And yeah, you know, there's a couple takeaways I I get for this. One, it reminds me very much of a customer and MSSP relationship in some ways, where a customer may hire an MSSP to, I don't know, run their, their IPS or run their firewalls or, or manage their firewalls or whatnot. And at the end of the day, that MSSP is is managing, let's just pick on firewalls for a minute, managing those firewall policies for that customer and implementing the changes the customer is asking for. Now, is that MSSP on the hook for smart and wise changes? And is that MSSP yeah. now own all liability associated with that customer being hacked? No, of course not. Right. But that's sort of that you know, functional problem here where you know, and, and, and one of the guys in this particular article talks about if Bangladesh Bank starts suing the Fed, they should really take a long, hard look at their contract. And I think that's true, but how many people actually look at it and understand it and understand what the contract says and where the liability lies, especially across many different cultures and many different um, countries who look at these things very differently than what maybe normal, you know, Western or United States business practice that just is ingrained into our heads may be very foreign to a lot of other other countries potentially and vice versa they may have concepts and and things that are just you know the common law common sense stuff that is very foreign to us it starts to get very very sticky right um you know the other thing that that i looked at that this is something that's kind of come up on the twitters recently is so there's not a lot of real hardcore security around swift basically, at a centralized level. And that Swift has basically said, hey, you know, we trust the originators. And whether or not that's right or wrong, I think it's a great example of something that we've talked about a lot, which is that there is no perfect solution. When you start balancing all the business costs and risks together, and so I'm sure Swift is not naive or stupid. I'm sure that they had folks who said to them, hey, you know, we should probably increase the security here or that there. And I 
would wager that the executives and the folks who made that decision looked at the costs involved and said, too expensive, it's not worth it, we'll take the risk. Yeah. And in general, you might argue that it was a correct risk to take for how many years? That's a Swift good, has that's been good operating for, for dozens of years without this issue. Right. So the, it, it is, you know, that money that would have been spent on security went to something else. Now, was that the right call? Well, in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, look how, look how badly they were hurt over this. Maybe we'll see. But at the time, kind of like the Challenger situation, right, where they hadn't been burnt yet. They, this hadn't been a problem. So they're constantly, businesses are constantly trying to weigh this. How much do I invest? Money, people, convenience, efficiency, business process into security versus right. other areas of business. Yeah, it's always worked before. So why? what would make us think it's going to fail tomorrow? Right. And, and there is no right answer. As much as we as security folks go, oh, this was stupid. This was terrible. We have one view into the business, which is what is secure and not secure. When the reality is the senior leadership team has to look at how am I deploying my resources and hitting my business goals? Yep. That's you right. know, it, if, if you boil it back to fire uh, prevention, you could have a sprinkler above every desk and you could have, you know, <laughs> you could go overboard on fire prevention and, and make, make your entire business built out of completely fireproof materials. And, but, you know, is the risk that high to justify that expense? Right. And businesses do catch on fire occasionally, relatively speaking, and they have insurance to cover that. But I guess my point is, we've got to figure out how to deal with a non-secure situation when we're security folks. Because we're not always going to win that argument. Yeah, you know, and, and, and honestly, the the SWIFT network and the, the endpoints on the SWIFT network itself are kind of an interesting metaphor for the internet itself, right? Because... Swift is acting logically like the internet. They just connect two disparate parties and let them talk. That's true. And they don't apparently really do anything in terms of uh, assurance. I mean, it's it's intended to be kind of a limited access network. Like not ever not everybody can get on there and and uh, you know whatever. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, this is—it's kind of the, the model is kind of like um, uh, you know, tr trusting that some other party on the internet is you know you, relying on your security. Uh, I should say, offloading your security to some other party, you know, that you don't have any any visibility into, and so it—it's—it it just again, it seems like the entire model behind this this concept is not uh it's not really <laughs> well thought out at a macro level and they talk about in here in the article how they they see some parallels to the the uh, the business email compromise scams from the 2000s where we had lots of small companies being um you know, having their bank accounts their their commercial bank accounts being compromised and having funds transferred out, and those, that resulted in a lot of lawsuits, and kind of s established the uh, the case law around who's responsible to, for when when those losses occur. 
And that resulted in, for instance, the FFIC, the, the, the U.S. banking regulators, uh, laid out some requirements for authentication to help mitigate that. Uh, but at the end of the day, they, you know, they, by and large, in the corporate world, the losses are unless there's unless there's some negligence on the part of the financial institution, the losses are borne by the customer. Right. And so, you know, what their point here is that if these things are adjudicated in U.S. courts, it's quite likely that you'll end up seeing similar kinds of uh, of results, which kind of playing that back says that. Uh, you know the the, the originators, you know, all, all else being equal, right? The originators are going to have to up their game and and not look to the the recipients of the messages to uh, to look for fraud. So that's, or Swift is going to have to start mandating very specific security controls that all the originators have to use to participate. That's if they're going to be yep. held liable. Yeah. Yeah, but th- th- see, that's where I Swift is like a. You know, kind of an interested party. They don't. They don't seem to be in the line of fire <laughs> yet. Know, yet. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I, you know, that could be just some interesting tap dance work, right? Yeah. Um, or it could be. It could be that their members push on them to push on other members. Yes. Uh, you know, it's. But I think the takeaway here as well is, is this is very similar to having uh, third-party business partners engaged in your network environment. How much you trust them? Yeah. Indeed. So, um, so we kick that one to death. Let's move on to the next story, which is from Tripwire, and the title is "Does Dropping Malicious USB Sticks Really Work?" Uh, yes, worryingly well. This is not a story from ten years ago, or eight years ago, or five years ago. Yeah. So some some researchers, and, and the the point of the research was not do people plug in USB drives that are left in a parking lot. It was more around what factors increase the likelihood of people plugging in USB drives. And so they, um, this in particular, were labeling USB drives with different things. So for instance, they had some of them labeled with a, a you know return name and address, and some of them didn't have any label on, on them. And some of them you know, were labeled with the word exams, and some said confidential, and some said keys. And, and then they... Uh, they they planted a, a HTML file on on the uh, the USB drives when they opened it up. Uh, you know they the the operators of the survey could actually see that someone, assuming their computer was connected to the internet, had opened it, plugged it in and, and opened it, and then uh, then it op uh, it offered a uh, a little survey in return for a gift card, which apparently some people did take up. I find that interesting too. But um, you know the, the the number one uh, label that got over half of, of uh, people to open the uh, plug it in and open a file was the word keys, and I still think you know uh, NSA backup uh, re- please return to East Noden if found would would be <laughs> way superior. Super secret stuff here. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, point is, um, people are still very, very curious when they find USB drives. They're going to plug it in if they can. They're going to click on all of the things. And this is still a problem. It didn't go away. Well, and, and what's interesting that I'm glad this article points out is a lot of people say, well, you know, I've got software running on my 
on my desktops that doesn't allow you to plug a USB uh, drive in, and it just disables it, so we're fine. Well, here's the thing. Attackers have figured out a way around that now. So yes. keep in mind, a USB is universal. So your keyboards also plug into those ports. So that software that is blocking use of that drive can't also block use of a keyboard or your keyboard wouldn't work. So what they've done is basically spoofed that that USB stick is actually a keyboard to the system. So a human interface device basically is what is what it's called technically. And so when you plug that stick in, instead of it being a drive, it's a keyboard that sends basically a series of keyboard commands, just like keystrokes, that in essence can do whatever it is they want them to do, build a reverse shell, uh, load, a, load an account, whatever it is. So, so even if you've got that software that's, a, that's blocking USBs from being utilized in your environment, uh, you can't shut that off as easily. Exactly. So that's a, you know, an interesting attack vector to keep in mind. Um, and uh, maybe epoxy is your best solution at that point. Yeah, someone I was having a Twitter discussion with someone the other day, and someone there's a company that sells little uh, USB port blockers that has a little has a magnetic key that you have to use to pull the the blocker out. So I thought that's yeah. pretty cool. But you know, at the end of the day, if a user really wants to do it, they're going to do it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know, maybe we need to <laughs> consider some other technology. You know, maybe a little micro VM that encapsulates the the USB ports, or yeah. you know, uh, opening it up in some sort of sandbox or whatnot. Indeed. So, um, so moving on to our next story, which comes from Ars Technica. The title here is "Frequent Password Changes Are the Enemy of Security." FT technology, FTC technologist says. This one got under my skin. I got to tell you. So tell me, why did it get under your skin? Well, do you want to give a recap of the story first? Yes, yes. Okay. So, uh, so um, this uh, pr new professor, this new hire, I guess she's the chief technology at the FTC, uh, came in and and noticed that the FTC is is tweeting, uh, tweeting, tweeting. There we go. Man, I'm getting old. Wow. Yes, um, you are. Yeah, I'm feeling it. Uh, that, um, you know, the oft parroted advice about you know, changing your password. And I think, in fact, they, they mentioned that you should change your password every 60 days and it should be, you know, super hard to guess and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, this, this, uh, this new chief technologist came in and said, you know, this doesn't seem right. And, and so uh, she kind of started crossing swords with, the establishment within the FTC trying to contest that. And um, they apparently seemed receptive to, uh, you know, counter arguments and, and ask for some studies. And so they, they actually make reference to the study she pulled out here, which points out that in general, when people are forced to change password on some periodic basis, all they do is they iterate, you know, they, they have a, you know, password one and then now it's password two when they need to change it password three and password four whatever and and the point was that when when you when you do that you're not actually really helping yourself much in terms of security and so maybe you you ought to be you would be better off if you got people trained to use a much you know longer maybe more random thing that they didn't have to change periodically um 
you know, and then they would have a chance to, to remember it. And, you know, to be honest, the whole thing seems just kind of wrongheaded. I, by the way, I, you know, there's that password manager and one, one password. I am, uh, I'm going to start up a, a competitor called password one. And, and instead of, you know, like generating random passwords, it's just going to give you the password, password one. And, and I mean, look, this is going to make them, you know, if you, you guys, here first. if you guys want to get in on, uh, you know, on the ground floor investing, I'm telling you, this thing's going to be huge. Right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, back on, tra- back on track. Um, point is, I, I just think the whole, the whole discussion is kind of I, I, silly. I get where she's coming from, but I think it's very misguided. Right. I, I, so if you take in a microcosm of just a corporate environment with one password to get into your, you know, let's pick on Windows, Windows desktop and Active Directory, I completely understand her point of, of people have figured out that if you're forced to change it every 60, 90 days, whatever it is, that you're just going to come up with a pattern and iterate the pattern just enough to get past the uniqueness and histor- history tracking of used passwords. I get it. And that is a problem. But her advice is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Here's why. Looking at it in a microcosm of just that corporate environment, that is not how people use passwords. They tend to reuse passwords throughout all of their logins. They tend to reuse the same username and passwords, which is usually an email address and the same password at every damn website and, and online site they go to. And the problem is that we're seeing a rash of those websites having their password databases dumped whether it be just the hashes or whatnot. And so we are seeing a ton of password reuse attacks going on right now. And so if I'm not changing my password, that means that the chances are that password is eventually going to get popped and eventually reused. Now, I think think she's not on the wrong path, but I think her solution is not fully baked. So... I think a much better solution, and you kind of hinted at this, is is using a password manager with a uniquely generated, highly random password for every site you log into. Now, granted, that does not work well for your desktop logins, unless you want to pop it up on your phone or whatnot. But, you know, we could also start using more two-factor as well. I think that would solve a lot of problems. And it, and it lessens the consequences of a password database gets popped. I think at this point we have to assume a password is going to get popped. Yeah, absolutely. So yep. I don't think the answer is, well, if you force people to change their password, they're going to uh, keep choosing we passwords. So don't make them change their password. That's not fixing the problem. That's fixing a symptom of the problem. We need better unique password management. With, and I think the only way that's really viable is via password manager. And more two-factor, I think, solves this problem. But I think it's really dangerous advice for the average home user to hear don't bother changing your password on a regular basis. Yeah, especially if you're using that password everywhere. Right. Yeah. I it it, it I completely agree. I, I I think the the premise as you mentioned, right? The premise that she's coming at this from is that it, you know, it's it, it's better it would be better off, you'd be better off having one complex password that would be hard to brute force in a particular situation, but that negates the whole point 
which I mean, you mentioned, and I'm just going to reiterate that that's not how most passwords are being lost these days. No, this is an incredibly academic view without real world experience in my mind. The the the, the most um, you know the the most active way is from password dumps in in. Uh, sites or, and or, or password captures or keyloggers and keylogging yep. or a phishing attack or a yep uh, there's a yes and yes people's passwords can also be brute forced and by the way our ability to brute force is growing exponentially by using GPUs so that doesn't solve that problem right we have to make the assumption the password is going to get disclosed is what I'm trying to say yep so I think and this is something that that when I get really cranky. I see a lot, which is folks who spend a lot of time in an academic environment thinking about security, who haven't spent a lot of time in the, the non-academic world uh, trying to run real-world security, ha have these assumptions of behavior in their mind that don't bear out in reality. So they come up with this really clever idea that works great in their lab, and then you bring it out to the real world, and doesn't quite work that way. I'm not saying they shouldn't try. I'm not saying that these aren't good ideas. But I see a lot of folks with really academic views of security who don't necessarily have the real world wisdom to understand the real world implication of what they're suggesting. Well, I, you know, having said that, I, I agree with with her premise that changing passwords is is silly. But I think the solution is the was where the problem was. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's the point we disagree on. So yeah. anyway. I think we have flogged that deceased equine. So the next story comes from IEEE Spectrum, and the title is Nigerian Scammers Infect Themselves with Own Malware Revealing New Wire Wire Fraud Scheme. So, uh, you know, this has been going on. These sorts of attacks have been going on for a while, but an interesting thing happened recently. Apparently there was a new-ish uh, organized crime gang, uh, I guess in Nigeria, uh, kind of stealing money from small to medium-sized businesses, and and um, they they apparently managed to infect themselves with their own piece of malware, which um, that piece of malware allows screen captures and, and key logging and things like that. And, and I guess it effectively pipes to an open, allegedly pipes to an open, uh, an open server that, that some SecureWorks researchers found. And so they were watching effectively the bad guys using their own malware on themselves and learned some things about how they work. And apparently... And, and to be clear, the, the bad guys didn't realize that they were doing this. This was unbeknownst to them that their actions were being monitored. Right, right. And yeah. so apparently these people, you know, are, are good, quote, church-going, I think they actually say that in here, church-going family men in their 20s to to 40s who are well-respected and um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to increase the economic potential of the region they're in and they see, they, they feel duty to uh, to do this, so that I guess was what they gleaned from watching their activity. And apparently, also saw that they're training up and coming fraudsters. Uh, but but anyway, the the way it works, which I thought was interesting, is that they um, through through many different uh, the the normal means, you know, phishing uh, attachments, links, probably even malvertising. Um, they will plant a trojan 
on the victim's computer and watch for uh, watch for banking or financial transactions. So if something like sending an invoice to a uh, to a customer. And what they'll do is they'll they'll redir they'll effectively uh, stop the sending of that invoice. They'll change the payment information on the invoice, you know, obviously to something that they they the attacker controls, and then send it out using a email account of the uh, of the victim, right? So maybe not the same email account of the victim person, but an email account on. Uh, on in that domain, so it's really difficult for either party to sense that something is going wrong, and and so that's the kind of the the unique thing here is that um, from a from the perspective of the customer of the victim, you know they're getting an invoice from the actual domain, you know f- that that they actually did business with for the amount that they actually owe. Uh, and and so it doesn't really look odd to them that there's nothing from the from the victim's perspective. Similarly, there's really nothing, uh, you know, assuming they're their super duper next generation antivirus can't detect what's going on. Uh, there's nothing to see there either. And and so all the way around, it it just looks like nothing's going on until uh, until the you know, the, the victim tries to go and collect the money from the customer who then says, you know, look, <laughs> I already paid you. And, uh, and there you go. So, um, you know, th- this is, uh, this kind of goes back to the point where, you know, there's the end point is very, is becoming increasing. I mean, it's already important, but it's becoming increasingly important and we need to do a much better job of detecting when you know, there's, there's bad actors on there, and and I think there's lots of opportunity to do that, both on the endpoint itself, and you know at at the network in, inside the network as well. And I suppose, given that these the, the victims here are more of the small, medium-sized businesses, maybe the this constituency doesn't necessarily have that level of sophistication to be able to do. But um, I mean. You know, the, the 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 failure to get better at this is is becoming more severe. The the consequences of failing to do this is becoming more severe. Yeah, certainly. And you know, somewhat aside, I remember reading a couple of years ago when you know Nigerian four one nine scams started to get pretty big. That there was an interesting sort of cultural impact of this. That uh, the reason I, I read and take this with a grain of salt um, is that. Nigeria is so such a hotbed for these sorts of scams is culturally, as I recall reading, that a lot of folks in Nigeria feel that the West doesn't deserve all the riches we have and that that this is actually a noble endeavor to bring money into their country and and to feed their people and to uh, you know enrich in themselves to a level of sustenance that they can live. Uh, by taking money away from rich people in the West. Hmm. So, you know, there's they see this as a job, as a normal everyday job 
uh, of how they survive, just like we would see, you know, going to the office every day. It's it's interesting. So it makes me wonder that, you know, in this article, they talked about how it was reported to the Nigeria Financial Crimes Division. And and I remember reading, again, take this with a grain of salt because I can't find the research now, but the, the amount of money that these sorts of scams brought into Nigeria was a, was a reasonably impressive uh, amount of money that it makes you wonder how aggressive their financial crimes group is really going to be against this sort of thing. Yeah, especially if that's a, a significant part of the country's GDP. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't so. have any numbers in front of me, so I can't really well, this, know, back that up. This particular group, as, as reported by SecureWorks, uh, allegedly had 30 members and was bringing in about $3 million a year. And, and so that's, that's I, I know a little bit about Nigeria, and the cost of living is, is, is quite low there, in, at least in some parts. And three million bucks is a lot of money. And, and so I, I, what you just, yeah. just said kind of, com, by the way, comports with the characterization uh, that, that the, you know, in the article, they made a, a very, I think, intent, in, uh, you know, in, uh, intentional reference to these people being characterized as family men and and well respected and church going, so it, it kind of aligns with what you just said. So, yeah, the average yeah. monthly income for Nigerians middle class is four hundred eighty dollars to six hundred forty five dollars U.S. per month. Yeah, so that's a that's a whole bunch of money. <laughs> Three million bucks is a whole bunch of money. Uh, anyway, so uh, so yeah, I, I, there's again no no magic to this. You know, I I think we've talked about in the past the importance of like um, if you're gonna if you're gonna have someone uh, doing online banking transactions for your organization, kind of to the point we talked about in one of the previous stories. You know, if you if you get compromised that the loss is on you for the most part, unless your bank really screwed up, the loss is going to be on you. And I think the, the, the point here is that maybe you know, as we've talked about in the past, you really need to do something to protect those computers, whether that's isolate them, dedicate them to that purpose. But the thing that this tells to me is, or says to me is that, um, you may, maybe the, the scope of what has to be in that bucket of, of really sensitive handling needs to be larger, right, to, to cover things like not only transacting uh, with your bank, but also uh, running invoices and maybe interacting with your, your accounting systems and, and that sort of thing. So something to think about. Um, again, there is no, look, there is no silver bullet here i mean there's there's there yeah. just isn't a, a technology that's going to keep all this crap off and so you got to think you know that doesn't mean by the way that you can't do it right if it's not plugged into the network or if it's on an isolated vlan or you know if, if you design something well which, or has a has a you know virtual desktop that's rebuilt right. every day from a known good image right th the, there there are solutions but it's not they a blinky cost something. It's not a blinky box thing that you agent that you install. It's like fundamental architecture design points. Yeah. And that's that's the point that I'm trying to convey here. So, moving on. 
Our next story comes from CSO Online, and the title is Disable w WPAD Now or Have Your Accounts and Private Data Compromised. Wow, now. Clickbaity. Now. So uh, WPAD is, uh, stands for the Web Proxy Auto Discovery Protocol, and uh, by the way, has been the subject. It, it has been probably, maybe other than SSL, like the most problematic protocol ever. It, it's It's just... Horrible, and some big critical patches came out for it this year too. It's a ter it's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. It has been like uh, so. So you're saying you don't like it? I don't like okay. it. I don't think. Well, I'm, I'm a little unclear on your view here. I think the the bad guys like it a lot, right? But anyway, the the deal here is yet another. So, for those who don't know, by the way, this is a protocol on Windows that is turned on by default. Not only Windows, and there are other operating systems that support it. That's true. But for yeah. this particular story, we're talking. Yes. So it is, a, it is a protocol that will allow, as the name might imply, will allow uh, a number of different mechanisms to auto-configure a proxy. So, you know, not all networks have a clear line of sight to the internet, and some of them force you to go through a proxy server. Uh, the way that happens is either through a DHCP, DHCP packet uh, there's some special DNS records, and then there's also um, a, a proprietary Microsoft name resolution protocol for local area networks. Uh, will deliver this JavaScript configuration. Whoa, whoa! What'd file. you say? I know it's crazy JavaScript. Well, see that. There's your problem. There's your problem. Yeah, hold my beer <laughs> and configure my proxy. <laughs> hold my beer while I code this JavaScript. So. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, basically what the, the researchers, some researchers found that they can, uh, especially if you're off-site, like if you take your work computer to Starbucks or, you know, the airport or wherever and you jack into their network, uh, you know, the public Wi-Fi, somebody can, um, can be announcing a malicious WPAD, which will configure your computer to use a rogue proxy, forcing all of your HTTP traffic through an HTTPS traffic through this proxy. Obviously, HTTPS is a little harder to monkey with, um, but you know the, the, there's you know, kind of almost endless possibilities of what can be done once once somebody is in kind of in the middle of your communications. This is such a, an example of convenience over security, right? This is such an, auto, an example of. We'll make it easy. Here you go. Yeah, but without you know, thinking about the concept of wow, I could really molest that if I'm a bad guy. Yeah, and but I think the the probably even more problematic thing is it's it's um, at least for me the issue is how many people until you read a story like this, how many people really understand that WPAD exists? And that's why we are here, Jerry, to well, spread the gospel of WPAD. <laughs> But but that's the point, you know, how many other... And the path to damnation, it will take you down. How many other things like WPAD are hiding in the bushes, right? No, that, you're right. And, and, and in all honesty, to be serious, this is why folks like CIS publish hardening guides and best practices and such that are really handy for this sort of thing. I, you know, I don't know if WPAD's turned off, but I've been doing a lot of... Um, baseline configuration work lately and and based on a bunch of CSI stuff. And if you go through and look at all the stuff CSI recommends on level one and level two, as an example, there are other 
you know, NIST has some stuff out there and uh, DISA has some stuff out there. But if you look at the recommendations coming out of these organizations, if you follow them, it does turn off a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yep. Or configures it more securely. But if you come, you know, fresh out of the box and not, yeah, absolutely. And especially, and here's here's the challenge for a lot of those folks who are making decisions, whether they know it or not, to, to leave this stuff on or off, they're sysadmins, they're not security guys. And and they may be awesome sysadmins. I mean, they, you know, may know how to run Windows or whatever a hell of a lot better than I ever will, but they don't necessarily, and haven't spent a lot of their their career looking at the security implication of this stuff. They look at, hey, what's the most efficient way for me to run Windows with my limited resources and budget and keep everybody happy? Um, so it's really tough to expect those guys to know this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's where we really have to be a lot more cooperative yeah. with, with our admin teams. Yep. You know? Absolutely. I, I, and, not, and not come across as Chicken Little either. I honestly think one of the one of the major problems we have just fundamentally in in IT right now that that's manifesting itself in IT security is just a lack of creativity on the part of architects and sysadmins and understanding how things can go wrong. And yeah. and you know look well, it's you know well, it, but part of the problem is is just to interrupt you because I'm a rude bastard. A couple of things. Bastard. That that, yeah, it's true. One, and we were talking about this on Twitter, we don't share information well for lots of reasons. Most of them are ethics or uh, confidentiality reasons of, of, of ways we're getting popped. And two, it's really tough to come into an organization and say, you can't do it that way because this may happen. Right? That's a really tough way to have an argument of because things are, are, are changing so rapidly. If we came back to uh, how you architect a building and you look at the engineering loads on a building, it's a very predictable set of circumstances that says if you don't put this amount of uh, capability for shear load here and support load there, this will collapse. That's really easy to explain. It's really hard to say to a system in, well... If a bad guy were to do this, this, and this, and this way, then this may happen. Right. Yep. It's a lot easier to say, wow, this just happened to that company, and we don't want it to happen to us. That's a lot easier. But that situation where people can open the kimono and share exactly how they get popped is relatively rare. Yeah. So then we go back to researchers giving talks at cons about how something could possibly be abused. And then we go back to the conversation we were having earlier of, well... There's a thousand different ways something may be abused. How do you prioritize and which ones do you do? I don't know. It's it's a complicated problem. But I, 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 I do think that the approach of adopting a baseline like CIS is a broad, it's, it's kind of a broad brush to, to address a lot of those things rather than trying to hit on each yeah. one individually. Because, yeah. I mean, you, you have limited bandwidth to be able to do that. So anyway, the other interesting thing I thought was, you know, most people might think, aha, you know, we require a VPN. And, and you know, so, so if you go to, if I go to a Starbucks, I just fire up my, you know, my VPN and I'm good. Well, sure. Yeah, that they, solves everything. As they found out, apparently a lot of VPNs actually don't clear the proxy settings. And so, uh, 
after you fire your VPN up, you're, you're, you could very well still be proxying your web traffic through the rogue proxy, even though you have VPN. So that's that that's a feature. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> All right. WPAD's bad. That's what we're learning. Yep. Yep. And I predict that will be not not the last bad thing with WPAD. So um, there was another one. I, I think it was a couple of months ago where. Uh, uh, all, all of the GTLD things were were causing big problems because you know as I mentioned, the 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 WPAD configuration file can come from DNS and so there, you know, it it oh, keeps yeah. it keeps like trying it keeps I, trying I, higher and higher uh, delegations. I was, I was talking to a buddy who's who's the uh, was working in a, in a security group for for a pretty big company, and they had just gotten a bunch of monitoring turned up, and they were seeing all this weird ass traffic going to something they couldn't figure out. It turned out it was, um, if you have, I can't remember all the details that you're telling me, but something, if you have some settings turned on, Windows will go to this default address based on your TLD looking for the proxy. Yeah, that's, that's WPAD. Yeah, and, and they were freaking out. Because apparently, I think it was something like it was looking to, you know, if they were called foo.com, it was just going to basically, I don't know, like proxy.foo.com or something. And somehow or other was ending up at a, a CDN that was hosting one of their marketing websites. Right. And so they're thinking this was some sort of exfiltration of data or some, some crazy shit like that. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's just, that's, to, that's, that's just a feature. Go turn that off. You'll be fine. Indeed. <laughs> so uh... it's being helpful. Yeah. So um, the last story for tonight comes from Fortune, and there's a lot of different articles here. This is related to uh, Delta. So uh, so for those probably now, in, anywhere in the world. Let me start by saying I'm not trying to pick on Delta because I have a lot of friends who work at Delta, but there's an interesting takeaway I do want to talk about here. Sure. So, so Delta had a pretty significant outage, I think it was a week ago on Monday, in the middle of the night, they had a fire in one of their, I guess it was in one of their electrical systems. And, um, you know, obviously they have, being Delta, they, um, they've they spent a considerable amount of money and they've reminded us in the public how much money they have spent on uh, on disaster recovery and, and failover capabilities. But, but, uh, unfortunately, when they, when they failed over, when their, <clears throat> their main power feed failed, uh, apparently some, I think it was 300 of their, I want to say it was 300 of their servers were not on uh, the backup power system. And so they didn't come up, but the ones that did had a reliance on those that didn't come up. And so um, the, the short end, the, you know, there's obviously not a ton of details because this is all proprietary stuff. Um, it didn't work. And and uh, it took a very long time for them to uh, to get everything set right. And I, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that part of the problem was that you know, this was otherwise a relatively non-event, right? You know, it wasn't something that would cause you to fail over to your hot site somewhere else. It was just, you know, you had a transformer pop and, you know, you should have a UPS and generator that could carry you through. Um and so I, my my read on the situation was they didn't fail they didn't do a complete failover. Uh, this again this is just my this is just Jerry's take so it could be wrong but you know they they tried to ride out with their main production environment and things got hosed up and it was all too late and then they had to 
to unhose things. Yeah, I, I, you know, I certainly have had some off-the-record conversations with a couple of my friends in Delta, and I, I don't want to violate any confidences there. But, you know, the takeaway for me is we have these DR situations that, that, that this is a great example of, you know, my understanding of Delta is they're triple redundant in theory. But in practice, they weren't. They ran into a failure condition of some variety, and I don't know all the details, that something in the DR failover plan just didn't work. And so my takeaway is, because I see this at you know my own organization, other organizations I've worked at, we don't really do, and I say we and I, in a generic sense, and I, and I would say most organizations don't do a real hardcore DR test simulating real world. We have a lot of assumptions around our DR. And I'm starting to wonder if we should have our red team start to come up with failure modes to test in production if we're really going to rely on our DR. Yeah, what wasn't Southwest... Um, what, there was a... Uh, I think it was Southwest. What, so, Southwest went down yep. for a while while they were running a DR test, as I and recall. The airlines in general have had a really rough time of it. I mean, if you remember how many have gone through bankruptcy and how close they've been to going out of business. They've not had a lot of extra money. So, I, I mean, I don't know the tech spending of any of these organizations in general, but in general, um, the airline industry has not had a lot of money to spend on tech. So they've got a problem there, that, that they've got a big technology debt eventually they're going to have to work out. But that whole industry has had so many bust and boom cycles, it's really tough for them to spend that money. Yeah. Um, but in general... I don't. I mean, how much do you trust your DR? If it really, really, really matters, you want to make sure it works. It kind of goes back to the concept of chaos monkey. Uh, and I don't know that we do full DR tests very often in our organizations where, where we, we simulate a lot. It's sort of like a really small, isolated pen test against one part of our organization. It doesn't simulate the real world. Yeah, I, so I, I'm, I'm absolutely a firm believer in the chaos monkey, but the chaos monkey doesn't work very well in a legacy environment where, yeah. you know, and, and, I, and I, in this particular article, they talk about how the, you know, there's highly, uh, highly customized or, or tailored, uh, customized might not be the right word, right? But, but highly tailored systems in place, these are not like commodity systems to handle the volume of, of transactions that they're handling here. And it, you know, it's, I, I suspect if someone were to start over you know, and fresh, maybe they could come up with something that was much more resilient. And, you know, I, there's, I've seen a lot of people talking about, uh, you know, the, the spending thing. And, you know, the, they, there's been a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of, uh, a lot of profit problems and whatnot, consolidation and changes and whatnot in, uh, in, in the airline industry but I think they do spend a ton of money on IT, and, and the C, CIO of Delta kind of went on, you know, on air and, and said that said as much. I mean, to be honest, it sounds like the the cause here may be a lot more pedestrian than just underspending, and it may be, you know, oops, we didn't we didn't plug that thing into the right port. <laughs> Could be. I, I, I hopefully we'll know more. Hopefully I, it would be awesome if Delta published the full 
breakdown of what went wrong. I don't know if they will, and they're not, certainly not obligated to, but uh, I think we could learn from it. But I, the takeaway for me is some. I don't think that our DR tests are really replicative of, of the real-world failures where, where you get a partial failure, you're partial degraded, or, a, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it would be better to do more robust full-on DR testing if you really believe in your DR and, and have red team folks come up with uh, weird DR things to try. That that could happen in the real world as opposed to this very theoretical, you know, light DR test that we typically do as organizations. Right. Yeah. And, and you're right. And I think the, the fundamental problem that is pointed out here is you don't know that things aren't plugged into the right power port until you try to actually turn the power off. True. And and then, you know, would you rather know that in a planned DR test in the middle of the night when you've got, you know, or would you rather it happen in the real world at the bad possible time? Right. Or worst right. possible time. So, uh, I don't know. It, it This is the risk you always run, right? It, it's, it's also like doing really hardcore pen testing. It runs a risk of breaking a server, but would you rather find that before the bad guys do? Yeah, yeah, it... it... Look, you, you run tough. a risk either way. You run a risk either way. You either run a risk of not doing aggressive testing and not knowing about it until something like this happens, or you run the risk of with aggressive testing of breaking yourself on your own. Yeah, and this this so, is the this is the problem, I I think of environments that grow organically, and then you know also also by acquisition where things get kind of glommed on, and you know a lot of these environments aren't you know they don't start off with a master plan right and not not saying that when these environments were built a lot of the concerns that we have today would have even been thought of right but certainly the power problem probably would have been but i guess the point is if it's difficult because you know a a smaller organization isn't going to isn't going to go through the machinations and the expense to design something that is you know extremely thorough and fault tolerant and whatnot because they're still really small but at the same time as you grow and grow and grow it becomes much much harder to take a step back and you know and redo things the right quote the right way indeed and and so we end up with we're constantly in this in this state of you know what we wish we could do it differently if we we had it to do all over again we would design it much differently, but you almost never get that chance. Yeah, and it, it rarely makes fiscal sense either, unless you're, you know, moving to a brand new data center or, you know, we had that opportunity, you and I, once when we moved uh, to a brand new headquarters. We got to build a whole new everything from the ground up to the most, for the most part. Yeah. But that's rare. That's really rare. Right. And right. also very cost prohibitive for a lot of companies. Yes. Yes. That that, that was a dot-com thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was... That was the late 90s, early 2000s sort of crazy spending days. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, anything else you wanted to uh, to say about the story? Uh, no, no, I think we're good. I did want to, uh, if we want to move on, I had a, yep. one other thing. Go um, ahead. want to give a shout out to O'Reilly. Uh, they got a conference coming up in New York, uh, the Defensive Security Conference. No relation to our show, just pure coincidence. Pure, However, Purely coincidence. I, you know, as far as we know. Not saying that there hasn't been a plethora of things with that name lately, but that's fine. 
<laughs> We're trendsetters, man. <laughs> no, uh, it's it's a re- it sounds like it's going to be a really cool conference. This is a, the first time there's going to be one in New York, one in Amsterdam. It's all blue team focused, defensive focused. Uh, Jerry and I will be there. Uh, we're we're running a track. We got to get all the details on that going. But um, it'll be epic, whatever it is. And even if we're not running a track or whatever, we'll still hopefully be there, and you'll be there. And yeah, it'll be a grand we'll, old time. We'll we'll have fun. Yeah. So check that out. I think I think uh, tickets uh, are starting to tear up in pricing as they get closer. So um, we should we should see if we can leverage like a discount code for our for our listeners. Yeah, that's right. You should you should ask you should get on that. Uh, Why aren't you on that? I'll get my people on that. <laughs> uh, but anyway, check that out. It looks like it'll be a cool conference. Seems relevant, you know, uh, something that would be of interest to our our listeners, relevant to our to our interests. Yeah, and I think the the intention, by the way, is we we all, and I, in particular, complain a lot about the 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 lack of blue team content at security conferences. And here here's here's a organization, you know, trying to do something about that. So, um, be silly not to embrace it. Yeah, we should give them some love. Yeah. Not the other conferences aren't cool too, but you know, this is definitely our sweet spot. It's a new thing. So here you go. What else is going on? Uh, DerbyCon. You're going to be at Trump, right? I'm going to be at DerbyCon. It's going to be great. I will not be there. I'm sorry. It's all right. And I think that's uh, I think that's all we got for now. Um, maybe there might be a a um, besides Atlanta, but that's a little iffy right now. I think so. If we hear more about that, we'll uh, we'll make comments. And uh, I guess with that, we will uh, we'll talk again next week. If you if you like the show, give us some love on iTunes, you know, and, and, and we'll promise, well, to the extent we can, that we'll try to be more uh, more regular here. Uh, and uh, you know, but eat, but eat eat your fiber, eat my fiber, my prunes. That's right. And uh, you know the uh, I was going to say the poop yogurt, but that's just gross. So Ew. I know. Ew. I know. I know. I went you had there. to go there. I had to go there. And uh, let's see. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. Me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. You can find links to all of the stories, which there were a bunch of tonight, on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. And with that. Wait, one more thing. Oh, Jesus. You ruined everything. I did we have not given a shout out lately to our Patreon donors. Yes, thank, thank you. you. You guys are awesome. It's amazing that you guys just give us money. That's blows my mind every week. Yep. So thank you. And it, it, by the way, if you are interested in supporting the show, we are completely sponsor free, which means we can be absolutely uninfluenced by any third party and can say whatever we want. So we'll never get hired by most of the companies we talk about on the show. Um, look us up. You, you're we would welcome your your donation to to the uh, keeping the show running. That's right. Um, that money pretty much goes to bandwidth and servers and such. It's you know we're not getting rich off that, but my God, do we appreciate those donations? Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for listening. And uh, tell a friend. So we'll talk again next time. Thank you. Have a great week, everybody. Bye. Bye.